I just want to make a statement about everything that's happening right now. I want everyone to know that True Consequences has always stood for justice and will continue to stand for justice. The forces that try to divide our country and the world will not prevail. I believe that love and unity will prevail. I am calling for justice for all victims of murder. What happened to George Floyd was inexcusable. What happened to Breonna is inexcusable. We all have to do better. Hi guys, Kira from Murder and More here. I am the solo host of the UK-based true crime podcast, where each Sunday I tell you about a murder, disappearance or serial killer. Murder and More is available to listen to wherever you get your podcasts, including platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Castbox and Stitcher. You can find us on Twitter and Tumblr at Murder and More, Instagram at Murder and More Pod, and on Facebook at Murder and More Podcast. Head over to murderandmorepodcast.wordpress.com to find out more. The Oracle Network. Look deeper. This is True Consequences, a true crime and mystery podcast with stories based in New Mexico in the American Desert Southwest. This podcast is sponsored by Hero Cosmetics. Go to HeroCosmetics.com and use code TRUE15 to get 15% off your order. Just a couple of quick announcements. I'm happy to announce that True Consequences is now part of the Oracle Network. Check out all the amazing shows on the network by going to theoraclenetwork.com. That's the Oracle, O-R-A-C-L-3, network.com. I'm doing weekly live streams on getvocal.com every Thursday night at 8 Mountain, 10 Eastern. I will be discussing episodes doing Q&As, and I will even have some special guests on. Come hang out with me on Get Vocal. Oh, and did you know that I have True Consequences merch? Get your La Llorona shirt or your True Consequences hoodie today. You can find links to my merch at trueconsequences.com. If you buy any Justice for Jacob item, half of the proceeds go to the New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And finally, I'm launching a new podcast that will start at the end of the current season of True Consequences. The show is all about the paranormal in New Mexico and the surrounding areas. I will be joined by my co-ghost, Alex, and the show is called Dos Pequeños. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook by searching for D-O-S-S-P-O-O-K-Q-U-E-N-O-S. If you enjoyed listening to this show, please rate, subscribe, and review on your favorite podcatcher. True Consequences is listener-supported. To support this show, go to patreon.com slash trueconsequences. You'll get access to episodes early. You'll have 
ad-free episodes, as well as other fun perks. You'll even get a free sticker from me. To keep up with all my updates, you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at True Consequences Pod and on Twitter at True Cons Pod. Today I am joined by Lydia Wolberg once again, and we are talking about prison breaks in New Mexico. No, not the show on Fox. Actual prison breaks that happened here in New Mexico. I thought it would be an interesting idea to explore what happens when people break out of prison here. And as you can imagine, there's a lot to tell related to prison breaks in New Mexico. I won't keep you waiting. I'm Eric Carter Landine, and this is True Consequences. Hi, Lydia. Hello, Eric. Welcome back to True Consequences. Thank you for having me back. <laughs> um, Despite all the letters of protest that you received, those were asking all, that I never return. Those were all from me. <laughs> <laughs> I just kept spamming your email. <laughs> uh, so I saw this story and I thought that this would be a good topic for today. It's uh, Prison Breaks. Yep. And there's quite a few prison breaks that happened in New Mexico in the past. So uh, I have a very long story. I know yours is a little bit shorter, yep. but uh, yours is more entertaining than mine. Mine's a little bit of a bummer, <laughs> which is which is like my style, basically. Yeah. I'm really good at bumming things out. But not to be confused with the show Prison Break. No. With those hot brothers. Not to be confused with that. Um, I never watched that. Me either. But the pictures looked nice. (laughs) So um, anything that you want to talk about? Anything that you want to share before we jump in? No. (laughs) So glad you're here. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Jeez. This is going to be fun. Okay. So Lydia. Yeah. Do you remember when we covered the prison riot of 1980? Oh, I do recall. Uh, I recall because you traumatized the shit out of me for several weeks. I'm sorry. Although I have heard that a lot of people feel that's their favorite episode. Oh, who says that? Um, Me. (laughs) My ghost accounts on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to start there. We're going to kind of pick up where we left off. So the prison riot happened. And after that, there were a bunch of major changes that were made to the New Mexico prison system, as you can imagine. Uh, But would you be surprised to know that the success of those changes were pretty mixed? I am not surprised, given that that's kind of the New Mexico way. Right. Even though there was this like concrete recommendation, like a huge pamphlet, basically, given to the state on what to improve after the riot. I'm not surprised that maybe some or very few of those recommendations were (laughs) utilized. Yeah. So I found this Albuquerque Journal three-part series that talks about the aftermath of the riot. And I don't know if you knew this, but after the riot, many of the prisoners were sent to other states, Mm -hmm. uh, to other facilities to house them until things were cleaned up and fixed and everything. I mean, the entire prison was like, one, one wing in particular was completely you know, like burned down. Like yeah. there was nothing there. I mean, not to mention that they had to like clean up everything and all and the bodies. And everything was a crime scene. Yeah, everything was a crime scene. So because of the cost of keeping those prisoners in other states, it because that was skyrocketing, state legislators started fighting to bring them back to the state penitentiary only six months after the riots. That's interesting. So it was expensive expensive for new mexico to have other states house our inmates yeah that's interesting 
I mean, you wouldn't think that other states would just do us a solid and, like, give our prisoners in-state tuition, basically. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how it works, but I think that the other part of the cost was the cost of fixing the prison. So mm. those, were, those were also putting pressure on the legislators. Oh, so legislatures were like, let's just get some duct tape and figure this just out. Just put them back in there. They'll be fine. Super glue it. Don't worry about it. My cousin will fix it. He told me. After you give him a 12-pack. He knows a guy. <laughs> no, just give him a 12-pack. He'll be fine. Um, so this happened even though the prison really wasn't ready to be reopened. I mean, six months isn't a long time. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> so as you can imagine, this created more problems and more challenges for the inmates in the state. And I'm sure it did nothing to fix the morale issue or any of the issues that actually started the riot in the first place. So we have a really long history of kind of cutting corners in the state. Yeah. Yeah. So over the years between uh, the story I'm going to tell you and the prison riot, there were at least six killings of inmates and guards in the months following their return to the state penitentiary. Holy Moses. <clears throat> yeah. And many of the killings were related to the riot as inmates were fearful that they would be snitched on for killing their fellow inmates. So they did the only logical thing they could think of. Kill people to stop them from testifying against them. Oh, man. That that I mean, it makes sense because there were prosecutions that were going to follow the riot. Yeah. So they're like, I know what I'll do. I'll just start killing people. <laughs> totally rational. Um, <clears throat> the pattern of death and violence continued for years following the riot. And there was a ton of fear in the prisons that in New Mexico, the tensions would boil over again. And this carried over into the late 80s. While the state did not have another riot like the one in 1980, the tensions and the fear continued to fester. So now, let's fast forward to 1986. That's my fast forward. <laughs> Governor Tony Anaya, that's Tony with an E and a Y. Tony, Tony, Tony. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he decided he was going to commute the death sentence of five convicted murderers who were on death row. The former governor was quoted as saying, My personal beliefs do not allow me to permit the execution of an individual in the name of the state. For me to simply walk away now will make me as much an accomplice as others who would participate in the execution. He did this just weeks before his handoff of the governorship to Gary Carruthers. And this would lead to one of the worst prison breaks in New Mexico. So he's commuting the death sentences of these inmates before he leaves because he has moral objections to the death penalty, the death penalty which makes sense. Um, but that particular... Those commute that commuting of those sentences is what's potentially leading up to this prison break. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I can't wait to hear more. <laughs> tell so, me more. Tell me more. Did they break? I out thought we of agreed jail? we weren't going to sing anymore. Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay, so let's jump right in. This is like a fucking movie, by the way. <laughs> On Independence Day, nineteen eighty-seven, America, <laughs> freedom, freedom. Two convicted murderers plotted an escape and led a total of five other inmates through an escape scheme. These two murderers were William Wayne Gilbert, good old-fashioned three-namer, three-namer, and James Neal Kinslow. Another three-namer. They also convinced Robert Earl Davis, who was a former cop and he was in prison for burglary, David Gallegos, who committed 10, ten armed robberies, as well as Michael Schmidt, Michael Romero, and Hector Herman Torres. And they all totally got along with the former cop. Yeah. I mean, I guess so. I mean, he was one of them. He was robbing everybody while one he was a cop. Us. One of us. <laughs> this was one of the worst prison breaks in the state and maybe even the country at the time. Hmm. But before we get into that, 
I want to just take a look at a couple of the two main characters here, William Wayne Gilbert and James Kinslow. So William was convicted of murdering his wife as well as five other people. And he was also convicted of sexual assault. Sounds like a winner. He was one of the people that uh, death sentence was commuted <gasps> by Tony and Aya. Ugh. I'm so torn about that, right? Like if I was a family member or a loved one of any one of his victims, I may feel differently. But people who have moral objections to the death penalty, I, I can't um, I can't judge them for that. Yeah, but it makes me wonder. I mean, I don't know when his death was scheduled for, but it makes me wonder if this could have all been prevented if that wouldn't have happened. Ooh, I mean, that's like a pandora's box analogy like butterfly effect yeah <laughs> kill the killer to prevent to prevent more killing yeah. he was assigned as a janitor to the north unit of the state penitentiary which was considered supermax or level six and it housed the worst criminals and prior to the repeal of the death penalty in new mexico housed all of the inmates on death row mm. So you would expect to find rapists, murderers, and other violent offenders in this part of the state penitentiary. Something that I wanted to bring up was, can we just talk about his name, William Wayne Gilbert? It's three first names. It's not just like three names. It's three first names. <laughs> he does things to, with excess. Like he doesn't, he doesn't know when to hold back. <laughs> right. So he was quoted as saying uh, about the commutation. Is that the word? Commie. Commutation of his death sentence that it was like being a kid. At Christmas. Wow. Yeah. That's creepy and gross all at the same time. Yeah. And I'm getting flashes of um, Dick in the Box. I was getting flashes of like Home Alone. The, oh. The Wet Bandits. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Classic. <laughs> so let's talk about Gilbert. He was in prison, like I said, for murdering six people, including his wife. And I'm just going to read you a little excerpt from his appeal, uh, from his appeal documents from uh, the court hearing. Oh, my God. Please don't tell me he said she had it coming. <laughs> Not quite. So this, this is him appealing um, his convictions. The defendant was arrested on January 19, 1980, at about 4.30 a.m. Following an incident in which shots were fired at the American Sandwich Shop and at Four Hills in Albuquerque. Defendant was advised of his rights under Miranda versus Arizona upon arrest. He was charged with aggravated battery and booked at about 7.30 a.m. In, in Albuquerque. In the meantime, homicide detectives Ness and Jessler had been informed, by, had been informed of the defendant's arrest by 8.30 a.m. He had contacted a bondsman and was seeking to set bond at 10000 on the aggravated battery charge. The bondsman arrived at the jail at 9.30 a.m., but was informed by detention officials at about 10.30 a.m. that more charges had come up and that the defendant could not be released. The police had information that the defendant had been in the home of Ken and Noel Johnson on the night that they were murdered. Ness and Jassler took defendant to the police station at 10.30 a.m. and they again read his rights to him. The defendant said he understood them. Ness and Jassler questioned the defendant. And when the matter regarding the murder of Ken and Noel Johnson came up, the defendant realized he was being questioned about murders. He asked to see a lawyer. The defendant contacted an attorney who advised the defendant to say nothing to the police in the meantime. The attorney consented to the police taking fingerprints, samples, and a photograph of the defendant. Ness and Jassler did not ask any further questions at this time, and while the defendant's fingernail samples were taken, Detective Ramirez, who had performed crime scene work in the Johnson homicides, discussed 
the Johnson crime scene with the defendant. In the meantime, Ness and Jessler learned that the body of Carol Gilbert, his wife, was found in Gilbert's home in Las Lunas. Upon seeing the defendant again, Ness informed the defendant that the police were now aware of Carol's death, saying that the ball game is up and that sooner or later the defendant would have to do something. So this was like a murder spree. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And then it like was talked off by going to a sandwich shop in Four Hills and start shooting randomly everywhere. I was going to make a joke about like missed toppings, but I decided not to. I said no pickles. <laughs> there, I did it for you. <laughs> <laughs> this is horrible. We're not laughing at the murders, by the way. Um, okay. It is normal psychologically to make jokes after absorbing uncomfortable information. Okay. It's a survival technique. Yeah, we're just we're just traumatized, that's all. Some of the people with like the darkest sense of humor are ER doctors oh. or attorneys yeah. or cops. Anybody that has a dark sense of humor, I wouldn't be surprised if they see a lot of crazy stuff in their yeah. day-to-day. Okay, so uh, the defendant told Ness that he would like to be left alone for an hour. And that if Ness returned in an hour, he would talk to him. The defendant's request was granted, and Ness returned 45 minutes to an hour later at about 2.30 p.m. Is he, like, in a holding area? He's in an interview room, I think. Oh, okay. Murder charges had been filed against him at about 1.30 p.m. Oh, now he was taken to an interview room. So I guess he was at a holding place. I holding what cell. what he was doing in that hour. I don't know. Probably mm. thinking about things. Thinking about his life choices. Or not. Or not. Maybe he was just like staring blankly at the wall for an hour straight. Or masturbating. Ew. Why the fuck would you say that? <laughs> because he sounds like a complete psycho. I mean, Jesus that God. sounds like something a very psychotic person would do. I mean, I think staring at the wall would also be something a psychotic person would do. That has the tone of being <laughs> contemplative of... My suggestion, I think, is more indicative of well, something. What if I said he was staring without blinking for an hour? Oh, yeah. Like the girl in the ring. Okay. so It's still possible he was being naughty. Okay. I'll he take a track record. I'll take your word for it. Okay. Why specifically, like, hour? Was he waiting for a call? It's just so interesting. He said, leave me alone for an hour. I don't know. Then come back and talk to me. It's, <laughs> it's so weird, yeah. So, uh... He was taken to an interview room where he stated that he should call his attorney. Ness informed the defendant that he could use the phone, but the defendant responded that his attorney would advise him to say nothing. Defendant did not call his attorney and then proceeded to confess to two murders of which the police were not aware. Oh, no. Two more people they had no idea. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So two more people that they didn't even know were murdered. He's like, oh, let me just tell you about these two other people I fucking killed. And he was taken to the police station. At the police station, he stated again that he should call his attorney and again stated that his attorney would tell him to say nothing, even though he already confessed to two murders they didn't know about. As before, Ness offered the phone to the defendant, but the defendant did not call his attorney. And during the remainder of the afternoon, he confessed to killing his wife, the Johnsons, Barbara McMullen, and two other people, one male and one female, whose murders were unknown to the police at the time. That so was he just like thinking out loud? <clears throat> like... It sounds so bizarre, this confession. I think that he maybe thought that they already knew about all of them. Oh, okay. So then he was like, well, I might as well just talk about it, mm -hmm. you know? So that evening, the defendant directed the police to the body of Barbara McMullen, end quote. So he murdered six people and he confessed. He also, also sexually assaulted one of the victims before he killed her. And this resulted in him receiving the death penalty upon his conviction and he appealed the verdict and lost that appeal in the New Mexico Supreme Court. 
which is what led him to being in the supermax wing of the New Mexico State Penitentiary. I don't have as much information on James uh, Kinslow, also known as Jimmy Kinslow, but when he was 27 years old, he was sentenced, I think it was in 1979, he was sentenced when he was 27 to three consecutive life sentences. Because when he was 18, he uh, sexually assaulted and murdered a woman in Chaparral, New Mexico, and her two daughters, who were eight and six. Oh, my. Um, he confessed. He was the prosecution's key witness against his co-conspirator. So there was another guy. They broke into the house to burglarize it. And then he murdered and raped them. The witness testified uh, that Kinslow had claimed to kill others in, have killed others in Oklahoma. And apparently he had escaped from the Wyoming state prison prior to his arrest in New Mexico. Hmm. So he was already an escaped convict. On the evening of July 4th, 1987, Gilbert was mopping the common area of the cell block. When he had the opportunity, he pulled a gun on a guard and demanded to be let into the control room. So basically like the riot all over again. Oh, um, nobody knows where he got the gun. Right. Nobody knows how he got the gun. It just, he just had it and... Um, it was a real gun? Yeah. Or it wasn't like fashion? No, something? it was a real gun. They actually, he actually shot one of the guards. Whoa. Um, he didn't die. He just, he was injured. But uh, while he did that, Kinslow and another, and Gallegos went into the control room and opened up three cells and let out four more inmates. So um, after they left, uh, they took off running. They went to the roof and they jumped from the roof over the fence. There's reports that they've pole vaulted, but there's I haven't been able to confirm that. There's an episode of the FBI files that talks about them just jumping off the roof over the fence. And this is the best part. Due to budget cuts, there was no guard in the tower. And also, the sensors that detect motion on the roof were not functioning at the time because I guess they were still dealing with stuff. I don't know. I mean, that's very similar again to the, the riot where mm -hmm. lights weren't functioning. And yep. Work orders had been placed and they just never fulfilled. Yeah, they never brought Jimmy his 12-pack. That's probably what happened. Once the prison became aware of the escape, uh, they called the state police. And then this is when shit just gets crazy. So the searches were super extensive. Um, there were police officers on ATVs, horseback, canine units. They even had a helicopter with an infrared scanner. Uh, they blocked off every single road out of Santa Fe. They did searches um anywhere that they could think of that an inmate might be hiding and the canines picked up a scent from the prisoners and led them led the police officers to interstate 25 and then the scent just vanished uh, a shoot to kill order for all escapees was issued by the governor and the state police began to research the inmates um, behavior prior to the escape so they were looking at phone call recordings visitor logs inmate movement, all that stuff that was being tracked to see if they could figure out what happened. The FBI, state police, and local authorities were all tasked with helping find the escapees. And the airport was put on high alert for potential security issue as there was fear that the escapees might try to get on a plane and flee the state. So the police turned to the media to ask for help. And two days later, a man in Santa Fe reported that someone broke into his house. The police came, they noticed a prison jumpsuit was just like thrown in the house and they realized that maybe some escapees might still be in Santa Fe. Mm. And then shortly after that, same day, a security officer at the Santa Fe Downs, which is a horse racing track, encountered another escapee. 
he was wearing his jumpsuit still. He was just like walking around at the at the downs, like whatever. That's his color. <laughs> and uh, it was Hector Torres. He was arrested and returned to prison. The SWAT team showed up at the racetrack to see if perhaps the other escapees were there with him, and they weren't. There was nobody else there. So while authorities questioned Torres, he claimed that he had no idea about the plan to escape the prison and was only aware of what was happening when his cell was opened. He also said that Gilbert, Davis, Kinslow, and Gallegos all stuck together, and the other three were separated from the group. It later seemed that the four released the other inmates to create a distraction. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense for, you know, um, Taurus being at the the horse races. I mean, it, he didn't really seem like he wanted to run away, and he went to a very populated place. And That's still weird, right? Jumpsuit. Yeah. yeah, so it makes sense that he wasn't really involved, and he was just waiting to get caught. Yeah, like he wasn't prepared at all to be yeah. on the run. Yeah, so it made the police really start to spread out because I, I think that was like the genius idea of those three main escapees was that like if they could focus the police attention on a bunch of other places, the chance of them getting caught would be pretty low. Hmm. So on July 7th, three days later, just outside of Santa Fe, a young woman was babysitting her cousin when she noticed a man outside of the house acting suspicious. So she hid her cousin under a bed and began to call the cops. As she was on the phone, the man broke into the house, held her at knife point, and then realized that she was on the phone with the cops, grabbed a loaf of bread, and ran out the door. Thank God that's all he did. Oh my God, how horrifying. But isn't that like the most New Mexico thing you've ever heard? Like an escape prisoner breaks into a house, steals a loaf of bread and leaves? I I mean, it, for, it would probably need to be like a package of tortillas for me to be like, that's totally New Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> okay well we'll say it's tortillas then. <laughs> uh you can't make that up it's just insane so when she was shown photos of the escapees she identified david gallegos as the man who broke into her home and every home in that neighborhood was searched by swat and they didn't find him the next day a state police officer 85 miles south of santa fe sees a suspicious truck and notices a person lying in the bed of it it was robert davis the former cop he told investigators about the entire plan and how it was developed. He also claimed that the trio would be in a storage facility owned by a family member of Gallegos. Davis claimed that a family member of David Gallegos was helping to keep Kinslow, Gilbert, and Gallegos in hiding. The plan was to hide them in a storage facility in Santa Fe until the roads opened up so they could escape. So then the police went to any storage facility in Santa Fe they could find. They went through all the records. They couldn't find any connection to David Gallegos, so they just kind of left it alone. And since they couldn't connect it, they really couldn't search any of these storage facilities. And especially, you know, given the time, the given the time frame, how hard it would be to search these paper records mm -hmm. and time consuming. Oh, yeah. I mean, we definitely take our technology for granted these days when it comes to investigations. Oh, yeah. I'm sure that they, like, had to look through actual files. I'd be like, oh, uh, yeah, I didn't see anything. Sorry. <laughs> I'm so lazy. <laughs> I got a paper cut and said, never mind. <laughs> Ooh, forget it's going to take all day. <laughs> so they didn't find anything. And then uh, the FBI filed a UFAC complaint, which is the unlawful flight to avoid confinement, uh, which opened up the manhunt to all federal agents nationwide. Um, and then the FBI began investigating friends and family of the escapees. On July 11th, so this is, what, five days later? Seven days later. Yeah. A 17-year-old girl is taken hostage by two gunmen as she is quietly house-sitting. 
They take her car keys. She calls the cops. They take off in her car. Um, the police find them driving down the road. And as they're chasing them, the guy wrecks the car. He gets like super injured. His uh, occupant, the other inmate, takes off running. <laughs> and um, Michael Romero was arrested. Uh, Schmidt, however, ran away before he could be caught. And on the same day, a man living in Santa Fe noticed blood droplets on his walkway leading to his garage. He called the cops to report it. Police responded and found Schmidt hiding in the garage, bleeding from the injuries he sustained in the car crash. So now four of the escapees have been captured. And Gilbert, Kinslow, and Gallegos are the only people who have not been found. The police went back to storage facilities after questioning Davis again. And he was standing by his stories like no they're going to be in a storage facility like i promise you this is i heard them talking about it they went back to one of the storage facilities and this lady's like oh yeah you know what after you guys left i found some more files that i didn't know were here <laughs> likely story so, you know <laughs> that cop who was charged with that was like oh yeah she found another box whereas he had the box the whole right. time. <laughs> so she's like oh yeah here you go and like hands it to them and they're like oh Here's the connection to Gallegos. <laughs> they go to that storage unit, and sure enough, it looked like several people had been living in it. There were like pizza boxes and like soda bottles and all kinds of stuff there. And they had drilled a hole in the wall so they could see like everything that was happening <gasps> outside. Uh, so they knew if the police were were looking around, they knew what, you know they could see the traffic on the road. So they had plenty of warning if they had to get away. It was pretty genius hiding place for them so the fbi then used a pen register do you know what that is no it's basically an electronic device that records any numbers called from a particular telephone line and um, they applied this device to a handful of friends and family of the escapees that they felt were capable of assisting mm. and this resulted in a hit on a call to a motel in albuquerque FBI and state police went to the motel, showed photos to the front desk agent, and she recognized them. The entire area was searched, but they were unsuccessful in locating them. They had already left. It really does feel like they were a step ahead the entire time. Uh, they really had a thought-out plan. The major concern uh, that the police had was for Kinslow and Gilbert, who were both murderers. And Kinslow was also known as a rapist, and so was Gilbert. So they were a huge threat to the community. I think that at this time, uh, the entire state was freaked out. People were scared. Uh, people were worried that they were going to run into them. So uh, as they're on the run, the FBI and police were working around the clock to find them. Everything seemed helpless until something happened in Arizona. Uh, James had already proven that he was a danger to society, and he, he showed that as he stalked potential victims in Arizona. He forced his way into a home, started looking for weapons. He was able to get a shotgun, several handguns, a rifle, as well as ammunition. He then forced the family to get into their vehicle and um, forced the dad to drive them to California at gunpoint. Once he gets to Barstow, California, he takes uh, his hostages to a motel, he ties them up and then uh, takes their vehicle as well as their 11-year-old daughter and drives away. Oh, my God. The parents eventually get free from their restraints somehow and call the police. So now the FBI uh, were dispatched to the area of Barstow looking for Kinslow. And after two hours, a police officer is flagged down by the 11-year-old girl in Garden Grove, California, which is about 100 miles away from where she was abducted. Mm. 
He dropped her off behind a restaurant and told her, stay here, and he would he would be back. And if she called the cops, he would find her and kill her. She totally ignored him, flagged him down, or flagged down a police officer. And what a badass. Yeah. As an 11-year-old, to just have that, like, fuck you, I'm leaving. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, so Kinslow has the family's car still. And she had overheard him talking about um, talking about meeting a friend at a trailer park. So she gave the police a description. The police started patrolling and they find the vehicle. Uh, they decide to take a cautious approach and surveil the vehicle rather than burst into the residence. The vehicle left the mobile home and he was immediately approached by police and FBI and he was cornered. So he finally gives up and surrenders. Police then interrogate Kinslow in order to locate the last two fugitives. Kinslow totally sells out his buddies. He tells the police where they are, which was a motel in Garden Grove. Police and FBI decide to raid the motel. There were two rooms total. One room had Gilbert and Gallegos, and then the second room directly below was the family member of Gallegos who helped them escape. Oh, wow. Um, the escapees were quickly apprehended and arrested, and they had several firearms as well as plenty of ammunition. And on July 21st, the final three fugitives were back in prison. So almost a month they were out causing havoc um they all faced additional charges as well as additional sentences added to their current sentences and the three ringleaders were sentenced to life in prison and that is the totally insane story of the independence day escape of 1987 that is so crazy twists and turns and all kinds of crazy stuff happening that's really intense hey everyone if you're like me and you struggle with adult acne you know that it's super annoying to wake up with a giant pimple on your face. Today's sponsor is Hero Cosmetics, and they sent me over the Mighty Patch, which is a hydrocolloid acne patch. I actually had a huge pimple pop up last night, so I stuck on a Mighty Patch original overnight, and in the morning, the pimple was totally flat. Very cool. If you want to try the Mighty Patch for yourself, use code TRUE15. That's T-R-U-E-15 for 15% off on HeroCosmetics.com. I don't even know what to say after that or how to follow that. The only thing I, I think that is really ironic now that I'm looking at it is mine also, my story also takes place in July, but a year later. A year later. Yeah, yeah that is so crazy. Um, so my story involves a very one-sided love story. Oh, it's the story of my life. Yeah. Have you seen that meme? Uh, it's like two people in bed and it says, this could be us if you stop calling the police on me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to make of that. Is it like dark humor? <laughs> <laughs> Why are you getting the police called on you? Because <laughs> I'm not supposed to be in your bed. <laughs> oh, <I'm kidding. laughs> oh, that's scary um, <laughs> so um we're gonna talk about an unrequited love story oh so in july 1988 mm -hmm. new mexico dun, dun, set dun. the scene july it's hot as shit out here yep tempers are tempers are up it's, things are hot the sun is burning your face off yep and your heart is also burning mm. for the one you love mm -hmm. that you would do anything for or maybe not so July 1988 is the date when America witnessed another one of its more bizarre and brazen prison break attempts. The attempt involved a years-long infatuation that found its way to New Mexico and came to a head with a hijacked helicopter. 
Holy shit. Yes. <laughs> the choppa. This is going to be amazing. I can tell already. At the center of this Houdini act was a Beverly Shoemaker and a Daniel Mahoney. Daniel was a convicted murderer, and Beverly was utterly devoted to him. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> How romantic. Did she find him on like prisonpenpals.com? You know, that's a very interesting question. So Mahoney was convicted of murdering a woman in Tampa, Florida. Okay. In 1981, and he had a history of prison escapes. He escaped a prison from Maryland. He escaped a prison for, in Florida on Christmas Eve in 1983. So around the same time of his stint in Florida is when he met Beverly Shoemaker. Um, she was a home health aide, but other than that, it's not really clear how they got connected. Mm. So maybe it was one of those pen pal things. Yeah. Who knows? You know, funny story segue of how you meet inmates is my dad's ex-girlfriend met and fell in love with his brother after his brother was released from prison in minnesota Mm. and the brother's my aunt my dad's sister uh, was like, hey, I'll take you to go meet this really great guy. I'm going to go pick him up as he's released from prison. So it does happen. <laughs> I just. <laughs> so she dumps my dad and goes and falls in love with his brother when he's released from prison. Why are you telling this story? Because <laughs> <laughs> it takes place in Minnesota oh, yeah. and New York. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is a show about New Mexico. I just gave Lydia the most perplexed look. I was <laughs> like, I was not prepared for her to tell me that story, you guys. It just popped into my head. I was like, wait, this sounds familiar. How do you eat meat inmates? Oh, wait. <laughs> I know a situation. So you don't have to be lonely <laughs> right. at inmatesonly.com. <laughs> okay. So, sorry. Go ahead. So... Um, Beverly was this home health aide. We don't know how she got connected to Daniel. She was short. She was dowdy. She's considered by some to be fairly homely. She was 10 years plus his senior. But for some reason, they connected when he was in prison in Florida. And she was hooked on whatever it was he had. That hot, (laughs) hot inmate loving? Yeah, I mean, he had like a mustache. I don't know. He's kind of... A womb broom? Isn't that what... (laughs) It's sometimes known as... Gross. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So Beverly started following Daniel from prison to prison because she's in love with him. Okay, but explain that to me. What does that mean? Like, is she like getting arrested and going to... No, she's not in prison with him. She's anytime moving to whatever he gets town? Transferred, yeah, anytime he gets transferred to a new prison, she picks up and goes with him. I don't know why he keeps getting transferred. It could be because of his escape attempts. And if knowing that, why did they send him to New Mexico? Right, which Where is... clearly there's a pattern here. Hey, I know. Let's send him somewhere where they just had a bunch of people escape <laughs> multiple times. Yeah. Great idea. So she's basically like... A grateful dead roadie for this prisoner? Right. Yep. Okay. Yeah. All right. Just like, not even a roadie, because I don't really know what kind of attention A groupie. I meant groupie. Groupie, yeah. That's what I meant. So, I mean, I'm not... I'm not trying to kink shame or, you know, judge anybody here, but that just seems a little extreme. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he was a total manipulative asshole. Narcissist. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It kind of makes sense that he would be that person. So, he's... 
later transferred to the New Mexico State Pen in Santa Fe, and Beverly follows him to the land of enchantment. <laughs> she claimed to prison officials that he that she was his common law wife, and she would do everything in her power to visit him at least twice a week. Okay, but don't you have to actually be living with somebody to be their common law spouse? I can't imagine... I don't know, not to shade the 80s because we are both products of the 80s, but that says a lot. how thorough were people checking things? <laughs> well, and also the 80s in New Mexico was probably like, okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, we, we, I think still now it's very much like the wild, wild west sometimes where it's just like, okay. Sounds good to me. I'm not going to go and research this. So do you think it was like conjugal visits? I don't know. I couldn't find anything in the articles that I read to indicate that there was a sexual component here okay. other than her infatuation for him. Okay. And later on, we'll hear, we'll get some insight into kind of what he thinks of her. Oh, I can't wait to hear that. So she's visiting him weekly, and it's kind of unclear who came up with this plan to try to escape prison. And it's also unclear why there was this involvement with two other inmates um, named Lackey and Mitchell. But they were <laughs> Wait, definitely what? Lackey and Mitchell. Those aren't real names. Well, Lack- it's their last names. Lackey's yeah. not a... Is it? Lackey and Mitchell, yeah. Okay, all right. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, don't judge. <laughs> um, but they're along for the ride, too. That's not a New Mexico name. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. I can tell you're not from around here. <laughs> you're not my cousin. I don't know you. So the plan was for Beverly to charter a helicopter and in a really gutsy, ballsy move, the plan would be for her to force the pilot to land the chopper Shut up. down in the wreck yard of the prison. Shut up. Have everyone board onto the pr- the chopper and take off. No way. Yeah. So but- you know, when you hear wreck yard, it's that giant grassy, typically grassy area where um, inmates do like their physical activities working out and whatever basketball or whatever yeah yeah i mean i would probably just stand there but <laughs> you and me would be sitting on the bleachers talking about everybody yeah <laughs> and then we'd get stabbed immediately <laughs> we <would> get shanked. <laughs> all the time <laughs> i mean it was basically like high school all over again yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like exactly like high school minus the shanking i was never well, shanked in high school the the risk was always there yeah the risk was always there you're right but that's also just because we lived in socorro (laughs) okay wait so she so the plan is for her to hijack a helicopter yeah a chopper you have to say it like arnold twitch that's insane yeah and land it in the prison yard this isn't real life this yeah i don't know this is this happened there's no way There's proof. There's receipts. Okay. All right. Okay. So Beverly woke up that fateful morning, July 1988. It's just a few days before um, Daniel's birthday. So I guess this is kind of her gift to him. So she woke up. She got dolled up in her own way. She stole a (laughs) bunch of guns and ammunition from the roommate. (laughs) Hey, I I can't judge. I've been having an eyebrow situation since the quarantine happened. (laughs) Where... (laughs) I can't even go into it. This, All right, I will. I'm over tweezing because I get anxious, and then I try to fill in my brow, but now my brow is too heavy oh. with makeup. It's a situation. Okay. Anyway, back to Beverly. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Hero Cosmetics. <laughs> 
So Beverly woke up. She got gussied up. She stole some guns and ammunition for her from her um, roommate who had no idea what was going on. But at least she left a note behind and said, thank you for the guns and the ammunition. I need it more than you do. Kiss, kiss, hug, hug. <laughs> XOXO. <laughs> so she used a fake name and she went to charter that helicopter. She got the helicopter in Santa Fe. And once she and the pilot, and the pilot's name was Charles, a.k.a. Cheater. Is that a gang name? No, his name was just his nickname was Cheater, like, Cheater Bella. Like a little Smokey. Yeah, a little Smokey. <laughs> Sad eyes, Joker. <laughs> so once she and Cheater were in the air, Beverly brandished the handgun and um, allegedly pointed it at him and told him that he needed to land the helicopter at the prison to pick up her bow and his two fellow bandit buddies. A fourth inmate tried to get on the helicopter when they landed in the wreck yard. He's like, take me with you! (laughs) And they were like, nope. So they kicked him out. (laughs) This is, I mean, if this isn't a movie, it needs to be a movie because it's hilarious. We'll work on it. We'll work on it. Okay, all right. So this other inmate is trying to get along on the ride and escape prison with them. And they're like, nope. They just kick him out. They physically kick him out. I imagine he might have fallen a distance because the It's like taking off? Yeah, the chopper's taking off. And he's trying to get on. Oh, my God. And they said no. Oh, my God. Um, (laughs) That's insane. So once they were able to kick him out, the chopper was able to get into the air and start flying. The chopper. So guards at the prison actually started firing at the helicopter, <laughs> and they actually hit it a couple of times, but the chopper was in the air. They were escaping. I mean, I get it. Like, I get you're trying to stop this escape, but don't you think that there's a lot of risk? Like, if you shoot the helicopter down, it could, like, fall right back into the prison yard and, like, chop everybody's heads off. I guess that's a risk you have to take. <laughs> wouldn't know i've never been in a situation yeah i'm not a prison guard so i can't (laughs) say anything so shortly after they lift off and are in the air police are in quick pursuit um not only in the land uh, not only on land but also in the air they have a black hawk from u.s customs following them they have helicopters from new mexico state police so they stayed in the air for nearly two hours i imagine during this time Everyone's like, okay, what do we do now? I don't know if they had a plan about what to do. So eventually the helicopter started running low on fuel. And so it touched down near a landing strip in Los Lunas. And at that time, two inmates jump out, Beverly jumps out, and everyone makes a run for it. Um, Beverly was later captured hiding in a plane hangar. And when she was captured, she was still found in possession of some ammunition. It just sounds like this was a half-baked idea. Like, they didn't really have a plan on what to do once they got out of the prison. They just were like, oh, shit. (laughs) Is this happening? Yeah, maybe they were just like, well, we didn't think we'd get this far. (laughs) That's insane. Like, my story, at least, they had a serious plan. That's a very serious plan. Yeah, this one, I don't know that it... Although it starts off really gutsy. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't... It kind of tapers out right away. Yeah. So another inmate was found at a roadblock because, as you can imagine, they set up lots of roadblocks trying to capture everybody. The helicopter made its final landing near Albuquerque's airport, and the pilot, Cheater, was taken into custody because people didn't know if he was involved. Sure. Um, And he was actually detained for a while, um, but he was later cleared of charges. Good. Police were especially worried about Mahoney, um, Beverly's, you know, paramour. 
because him being on the loose was a concern. He was a convicted murderer. They believed he would be totally capable of trying to take hostages or hurting mm-hmm. innocent bystanders. So they definitely wanted to catch him. And sure enough, early morning the next day, he was found hiding in a bush under a bridge outside Los Lunas. <laughs> I mean, as one does. We've all been there. That was That's like a Thursday. Yeah. Right. You're in a bush. Yeah, you had way too much. Bridge. You had too much Mad Dog 2020. <laughs> Your cousin got sent up state. Yeah, you're upset. You're sad. So yep. you go cry. Yeah, you take your under ocean water under a bridge. Yeah. <laughs> people that like, I have listeners all over the world now. Like, they're gonna be like, "What the hell are these people talking what about?" What is an ocean water? <laughs> um, what isn't ocean water? Yeah. Is art art? You know? Listen, if you're from the UK or from another country and you come to the US, go to Sonic, get you a Route 44 ocean water. You can thank me later. You have to put liquor in it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what makes it a, a good cocktail. But also, it's still good. I'm Okay. I it's, mean. It's like a coconut flavored drink. Yeah. I'm not a big ocean water. I'm cherry limey. Cherry limey. Extra cherries. <laughs> So I can chew on this for I can, later. For I could lock, I can tie a knot with my tongue. It's so sexy. <laughs> I'm so, editing all of that out. <laughs> so Beverly made it very clear to authorities that she did all of this because she loved Daniel. Oh, that's she really was, sweet. Yeah, she was a prisoner to her infatuation with him. Some people write love letters. Yeah. Others hijack helicopters. Yeah, to get your, you know, your paramour out of prison. Yeah. Mahoney, on the other hand, he said he did the escape because he was bored. Eh, she's all right. He never really gave any indication that I could find that he was reciprocating any of this this love or attention. I mean, I want to feel bad for her. Yeah. But I don't. I know. So, Beverly, dear Beverly... She was convicted of um, of obviously helping somebody escape prison. She later served 33 months in jail. That's it? I mean, yeah. Really? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> God, New Mexico. Yeah. Get it together. <laughs> she was also paid by the National Enquirer to write about her ill-fated love story. Do you know how much she made? I think it was only like $3,000. Oh, my God, yeah. girl. Get an agent. But then again, it was the 80s. Oh, so that's like seventy million. Yeah, now in today's it's dollars. Today's dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I know what inflation is. <laughs> I can do math. <laughs> no, inflation is when your air mattress is running low. <laughs> that's deflation, stupid. <laughs> so she also apparently had a ton of like street cred and respect from her fellow inmates. Oh yeah, yeah, because they were just like, "Wow, you you stole a helicopter, landed it in a prison yard, and took off with a bunch of inmates." So she had some some street cred. This is the best story I've ever heard <laughs> in my entire life. And you know, at the end of the day, when she was interviewed by People, she said, "Whatever I did, I did it out of my love for Daniel Mahoney." Um, and as of 2015, um, what I could find, Mahoney was still incarcerated and serving a life sentence for murder. I don't know if he's still in New Mexico. Um, but as of 2015, he was still in prison. 
Um, I don't even know if he's still alive. I don't know if the other inmates are still alive either. But Is she still alive? I don't know. I, the articles I read didn't mention it. <sighs> I, I want to know so much more. I want a follow-up. I want a Netflix special, four-part series. Yep. Like, this is the new Tiger King, I'm telling you. I know. I want her to have a Twitter. <gasps> oh, my God. I would follow the shit out of that Twitter. I know. I know what that means. I just created a Twitter today, and I know what that means to follow somebody. I know, because you followed me. I followed you all um, the way to your house. <laughs> and, like, can you just imagine? Like, it would be all caps. Non, It'll be like like Cher's Twitter. Have you seen Cher's Twitter? Yes. It'll be like that. I feel like she would be using it like if it was Google. Oh. Like hotprisonsingles.com tweet. (laughs) (laughs) She types tweet. All caps. (laughs) Hashtag where my man's at. I can't mock the the people who are not tech savvy, okay? Because I am also one of that elk. I know. It's fine. But I'm just saying like that's for sure what it would be. I know. I wonder where she's at. If anybody could find out. If you're around, uh, you should like totally email me because I want to write a story about your life. This is the best story I've ever heard in my life. Beverly, Beverly. find us, please. Beverly. We want to talk to you, Bev. Come on, Bev. Bevy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. That was was crazy. That was amazing. That was a lot. I had everything. I had helicopters. It had kicking people off of helicopters. It had bridge sleeping. Yep. I mean, what else do you need? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Other things, I guess. But it is a sordid affair that they led. I'm so glad that we covered this topic. It's... It was way more fascinating than I thought it was going to be. It had a little bit more levity than yours. Yeah. Yours is... is, Mine was heavy. It was heavy. Yeah. But it was good. It was very good and intense. Yeah. That is the outcome of good planning for prison breaks, whereas mine... (laughs) (laughs) It's just not good play. Well, I still appreciate the story because it was insane. I mean, it was just like batshit crazy story. I love that shit. Um, Okay, so just so you know, Lydia, uh, everybody else knows because I won't stop fucking talking about it. I am starting a new show. It's called Dos Pequeños. It's with my friend Alex. It's all about paranormal in New Mexico. Spooky. And it's going to launch in conjunction with the season finale of True Consequences Season 2. Whoa. So can't wait to hear it. Yeah. So check it out. I love that supernatural shit. Me too. And there's a lot of it here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me over here. Thanks for listening, everybody. And stay safe, New Mexico. Thanks again for listening to True Consequences. Follow us on social media on Instagram and Facebook at True Consequences Pod and on Twitter at True Cons Pod. True Consequences is hosted, written, and produced by me, your host, Eric Carter-Landine. Thanks for listening, and stay safe, New Mexico.